Welcome to the third podcast in our sermon series, The View From Here. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Tyler Harrison will be continuing our series with a sermon called, Become, Following Him Together. Good morning, City on a Hill Church. Uh, Hello and good morning to those of you streaming online as well. Uh, As Bruce said, my name is Tyler Harrison. I'm on the elder team here at City on a Hill. Uh, Don't worry, he'll be back soon in the pulpit here. Uh, Two weeks without him, I'm sure you're all missing hearing his voice. Uh, So the past few weeks, we've uh, been in the series we're calling The View From Here. And that's essentially been a refresh of our mission as a church. Why do we exist? What is our purpose? What drives us? And where are we going? And the answers to those questions can be found in our mission, which is to intentionally invest our lives with others by living the gospel of Christ and following him together. Now, two weeks ago, Bruce took us through what it means to intentionally invest our lives with others especially given the context of uh, where we currently find ourselves. Isolation and distancing are now the new norms, and they have been for some time. And whether we like it or not, there will be lasting changes to society. Last week, we heard from our guest, Paul Stiver, and he took us through living the gospel of Jesus Christ. He rightly reminded us that we have received uh, great power to grow in gospel knowledge and live through gospel perseverance. And today we're going to explore what it means to follow Christ together as a body and to see where it is that he has taken us. And this part of our mission, following him together, is not an afterthought or a nice way to round out the wording. It's a critical part of who we are. And if you have a Bible or a Bible app, this morning we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4. When Bruce asked me at first uh, to preach a couple months ago, I, I honestly thought it was out of my league. I didn't really respond with much. In fact, I kind of left him hanging for a couple weeks. But when he reached out again, I I knew that he was serious. And when we settled on this Sunday and I was slotted into preaching on this part of our mission, Bruce gave me a lot of freedom to choose uh, where to preach from as far as what passage. But he was clear that wherever wherever we landed, we first let the scripture speak and develop from there. And as I dug around and searched for the right passage that truly embodies following him together, I found so many different places. Scripture has a lot to say about life in the body of Christ. And in no way am I able to cover it all today. We're going to focus on Ephesians chapter 4 and Paul's instructions to the believers there and apply it to following him together in our context. But before we jump into it, please join me in a moment of prayer. Lord Jesus, we desire to follow you together. We believe that you have called us to this. You've purchased us with your blood, redeemed us, and placed us into your everlasting kingdom, a kingdom which cannot be shaken. To you be praise and glory and honor. Lord, you made it clear that life in you, life following you, it's not to be done alone, but it's to be a part of a functioning body. You've also made it clear, Lord, that by your spirit, you are working in us in magnificent ways. 
sometimes instantaneously and sometimes over the long haul. Holy Spirit, you work in us to make us more like Christ. And this is a great mystery. It's a mystery worth pondering. God, teach us this morning from your word what it means to follow you together as a congregation and to be made more like Christ day by day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, since we're somewhat dropping in on Ephesians chapter 4, I think it's important we take a moment to see how Paul arrives here in his writing. Ephesians is sometimes called one of Paul's prison epistles. A number of his works were written from prison or house arrest in Rome, and you might remember it was Paul's proclamation of Christ in Jewish synagogues and public squares, and his allegiance to Christ over Caesar that landed him in prison. As we often see in the other epistles, uh, we see it here in Ephesians as well, Paul clarifies the audience early on. It is written to believers in Christ in Ephesus. And we can't take away Paul's instructions in chapter 4 from the fact that the entire letter is written to believers. A quick flyover of the early chapters of Ephesians shows us a few of the realities of life in Christ that Paul develops. In chapter 1, in love, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. We have redemption through the blood of Christ. In chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. In Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near. Chapter 3, the mystery of Christ is that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are partakers of this promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. It is these realities, friends, that must shape how we live. They must inform our day-to-day, -day, our street-level living. And the later chapters of Ephesians give instructions for that purpose. There are a lot of therefore statements in those later chapters. Because of this reality, therefore, live this way. We do this all the time in our day-to-day -day life. It's cold outside, therefore, layer up. The test will be challenging. Therefore, make sure you are preparing. Reality followed by instruction. Now, as we approach chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul begins that transition from teaching about the realities of life in Christ to instructing the believers. Let's read verses 1 through 13. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
Now, as I read this beautiful passage about life and together in Christ, I'm really seeing four points that Paul is making, and I'll try to convey each of those. First, he urges believers to walk according to their calling. Second, he instructs believers to pursue unity with one another. He gives the united purpose for the variety of Christ's giftings to believers. And lastly, Paul reminds the believers of the final goal. He reminds believers where they are going as they follow him together. Now, right away in this passage, Paul urges the believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. And it's important that we ask, what is this calling? Is it a calling on a specific few? Is it a calling only on the leaders of the church? No, it is a calling on all believers. It is the call of Christ on your life. It means this. It means that you have heard the good news of Christ Jesus, that the Son of God came into the world to save the lost, the last, the least, and the broken. And you've seen yourself among these, and you've responded in repentance and faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. This is what Paul is describing as the calling to which you have been called. And I want to take a moment to be very clear here. Believers, the good news of Christ is a great mystery. In one sense, we are complete in Christ. We cannot stand any more justified before God than we do today. Jesus' final words on the cross confirm it is finished. The price has been paid. The work is done. We in Christ have been bought with his blood and we are washed clean and justified before God. That is where we are today, right now. Take heart in that. And yet in another sense, scripture is clear that the Lord's work in us is not finished. And in fact, he will be working in us all our days. And this too is part of our calling. And it's been said that the whole Christian life is becoming who you are. It is sometimes referred to as sanctification, and it is the Lord's refining work in us. Romans 8, 29 and 30 makes clear that God absolutely accomplishes this in the lives of believers. Paul says there that those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, a few months back, we studied 1 Peter as a church, and that really showed us that through life's trials, the Lord is at work in us. And another way of expressing this ongoing work is that the kingdom of God is initiated but yet to be fully realized in me and in each of us. It is already but it is not yet. I stand before God righteous now because of Christ's work on the cross, but I am far from righteous in the here and now. I struggle with the problems of human flesh and mind. I'm still prideful, lustful, distracted, forgetful of God, and so forth. But praise God, he has not left me in these problems alone. And in verse 2, Paul gets into the specifics. He shows us what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, how it's played out, how it's applied. Paul urges us to walk in humility, gentleness, patience, love, unity in the spirit, and in the bond of peace. Now, I want to draw a comparison there between that verse and another instruction of Paul's uh, from Galatians 5. Now, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Do you see the similarities there? It's clear that Paul's intent in Ephesians 4 is to point us to the power of the Spirit working in us. It's clear that walking in a manner worthy of our calling, it's not something we're to find personal pride in. No, it's a result of the Spirit of God 
at work in us, producing fruit. If you're anything like me, it's very easy to read self-righteousness into walking in a manner worthy of your calling. When I think of being worthy, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. The pride in my heart is like water working its way down into every nook and cranny. It's relentless. But it's the wrong understanding. And I had the privilege of attending the Bethlehem Conference in Minneapolis last winter. And I got to hear John Piper talk about this idea of worthiness in our walk. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I have to trust him on the translation, but he said it could be just as well translated fittingness. So then the instruction becomes, walk in a manner fitting for your calling. And how might we look at the first couple of verses of this chapter differently if merit or self-righteousness weren't a part of the picture, but instead we saw fittingness or conformity to the calling? And further, what if we saw this as a work of God in our lives by the Spirit? Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. My friends, our white-knuckled efforts to be better people are nothing. We do this and that and the other, they are nothing. We truly bear the fruit of the Spirit only as we abide in Christ. We put to death sin as we abide in Christ. We live in humility as we abide in Christ. We grow in gentleness with each other and patience with one another as we abide in Christ. We have unity in the Spirit and we share the bond of peace as we abide in Christ. And to abide in Christ is to be in his word, to seek his kingdom above yours, to recognize and repent of sin, and to place your utmost faith in him. Jesus confirms this walking in a manner worthy of the calling, living in such a way that bears the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It isn't a prideful thing we can look back on as some sort of a merit badge. It is clearly God's work in us. Now, don't get me wrong. I acknowledge there is a, a great mystery between the relationship of the human ability to make choices and God's sovereignty. But think of it this way. As you're growing in your relationship with the Lord, as you are shedding the weight of sin which clings so closely, as you're becoming more like Christ day by day, don't look at yourself and pat yourself on the back. Look at God and thank him for his abounding grace and the spirit at work in you. Now, continuing on, these fruits of the spirit that Paul has been referring to in Galatians 5 and Ephesians 4, each of these are applied in our walk with other people. And this is, where, this is really where following him becomes following him together. Think about those fruits again from verses 2 and 3. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity in the spirit in the bond of peace. You can't grow or practice in these in a vacuum by yourself, except for maybe patience. It just depends on how long you've been in that vacuum. But that's beside the point. In our culture, 21st century America, we really, really highly value personal independence. Or maybe it's better described as non-dependence on others. But it wasn't so among Paul's original audience. The book of Acts describes the early church as being very interdependent, and they shared almost everything. And I'm not here to say which culture has it right. I'm only arguing that our starting point is very far from that of first century believers in Ephesus. And yet Paul's teaching on life in the body of Christ still stands for us today. It might be a farther reach for us to grasp, but the teaching still stands just as tall. And how can I know that for sure? Why can't we just say 
you know what, the cultures are so far apart, it shouldn't matter anymore. We can disregard that section. How can I know for sure that the teaching still applies? Well, here it is. The reason Paul instructs us that way in verses 2 and 3, it isn't based on cultural starting points. It's based on his understanding of God and the church. Verses 4 through 6 are the pillar on which verses 2 and 3 stand. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I'll put it another way. Paul doesn't say that we should walk in this certain manner, eager to maintain unity because we already live in an interdependent culture. No, we must be eager to maintain unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace, because there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is in all and through all. Paul's instruction stems from the realities of what the faith is and who the church is, who the triune God is, not what culture and time we happen to live in. So despite our surrounding culture often working against the idea of unity and togetherness and more toward isolationism and in independence, the church cannot base its day-to-day -day living there. We have to be a people who look first to our understanding of God and the calling on the church and later seek to apply that within our culture. We have to subject our cultural preference to the word of God. Now, quick side note here. I hope that we all realize one of the purposes of the unity of the church is its witness. Our unity directly impacts our ability to be what we are supposed to be. A light to the world shining forth the truth of Christ. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, moments before his arrest in John chapter 17, he prays for unity among believers of that time and for all time. Listen to this. So that the world will know the Father sent the Son. So our level of brotherly and sisterly love, our level of unity in Christ despite our differences, are a message to the watching world. Your humility in acknowledging your wrongs, your gentleness in handling the wrongs of others, your patience with that brother who you just don't click with. Your desire to be at peace with that sister despite very different parenting styles. Seeking to remain brothers despite a difference of opinion in how the government should be taxing us. All these are examples of eagerness to maintain unity in the spirit. And what's beautiful about this is that it isn't in vain. Jesus said himself, as we pursue unity within our body, we show the watching world that the Father sent the Son. And this truth unites us more than anything else divides us. And that brings me to the next point. Viewed rightly, the different giftings within our body of believers unites rather than divides us. Picking up in verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul acknowledges that Jesus does not bestow the same gifts or passions on each person. Paul talks elsewhere about being one body of faith, yet being made up of many individuals. And the unique giftings allow us to function together. The eyes, the hands, the feet, you know the story. 1 Corinthians 12 is a beautiful illustration of how believers work together, respecting each other, acknowledging their need for one another. We don't have time to do a deep dive into that today, but I did want to call attention to one verse there that relates to Paul's teaching in Ephesians 4. Speaking of different giftings, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. 
and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. We see there different giftings united in purpose. And Paul gives a parallel teaching beginning in verse 7 of Ephesians 4. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This overarching story of our lives, how you and I are recipients of the love of Christ, that story stands taller than any other defining characteristic. Whatever could be perceived as a divide or difference, Christ is deeper. For there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Moving into verse 8 now, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. I have to say, I had a really tough time understanding where Paul was going with that reference. As I read this passage, I would always get lost in the weeds right there every time. So I did a little digging around in my study Bible to try to understand where Paul was going with that. And it's kind of like this. Have you ever seen the movie Inception? Leo DiCaprio, Dreams Within Dreams, Spinning Tops, No Oscar for Leo. If you haven't seen that movie, that's okay. Depending on who you ask, it'll either change your life forever or you'll have wasted nearly three hours of your precious time. But the very short of it is this. The main character goes through dreams within dreams. And Paul sort of does a similar thing here, but instead of dreams, it's references to previous scripture. Ephesians 4.8 is a quote from Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. A little backstory on Psalm 68. That's written by David. And the specific verse is a reference to when the Israelites first occupied Jerusalem and the Ark of God was placed on Mount Zion in Jerusalem for the first time. You can find that account in 2 Samuel chapters 6 and 7. So now David, back in Psalm 68, he paints a picture of God who is a king who has conquered and ascended and is now dividing the spoils of the conquered territory as gifts among his people. By the way, the Greek word for men there is anthropoi, which is translated mankind. We're talking men and women receiving gifts here. Now back to Ephesians. Paul is using that psalm, Psalm 68, which didn't really even refer specifically to Christ Jesus, and he's using it to illustrate what Christ has done for us on the cross in the resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father and in sending the Spirit. He's a conquering and ascended king, leading us, a host of captives, and giving us gifts of his grace all the while, different gifts according to his measure. Paul basically repurposed that psalm to make a point about Jesus. All right, the inception is over. The top has stopped spinning. We are back in reality now. Now, these giftings that Jesus gives are different and unique according to his measure, but they are united in purpose. We're in verse 11 now, if you're following along. He writes specifically of the leadership giftings here. And he, being Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Did you catch that? Leaders, shepherds, teachers, evangelists, so on, are given as a gift from Jesus to his church for a united purpose, to equip the saints, that's everybody in Christ, for ministry and for building up the body of Christ. Now this equipping of the saints for the work of ministry is teaching the church how to minister the gospel of Christ both inside and outside its walls. It's teaching on Sundays, it's leadership and guidance for studying God's word together. 
one-on-one discipleship opportunities, musical worship opportunities, opportunities to serve one another and the greater community. This equipping is also teaching followers of Christ to make disciples just as Jesus taught. We are a people who've been shown amazing grace by God, and we want to share that with those in our circles of life. We're to steward the good news of Jesus Christ, not hoard it for ourselves. We're to shine our light, which is the light of Christ, before others and not hide it under a basket. And these things don't just happen. We need to be taught and equipped and shown how. And Jesus has gifted the church with leaders for just that purpose. Now, in my mind, this begs a really big question, kind of a scary question. How many ministers of the gospel of Christ do you think are part of City on a Hill? Is it just the professional guy? Is it just Bruce? Is it Bruce and the elders? Is it the, lead, the worship leaders or the leaders of city kids and city teens and men's and women's ministries? Certainly all of them are ministers, but Jesus gave those leaders so that the whole body of believers, the entirety of the saints, is equipped for ministry. We are all ministers of Christ, and each of us has been given the ministry of reconciliation. God, through Christ, is reconciling people all over the world to himself, and he's doing it through believers everywhere in different contexts and communities, stepping into their role as ambassadors for Christ. Now to this point, I've, I've cut off Paul's train of thought mid-sentence because I believe where he goes from here is so significant. Verse 13 answers the question that might be building in our minds. So we're following him together, but where is he taking us? Remember that united purpose for Christ's gifts of grace to equip the saints or believers for ministry for building up the body of Christ. The goal, the purpose, the end result is that we all, Christ's blood-bought people, would be built up. Until when? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. As we follow him together, we are shaped or conformed into the image of Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, we are even made the many brethren of Jesus. What a staggering thought that is. Now here in the flesh, in our fallen bodies, we struggle with ongoing pride and selfishness and lust and anger and a host of other sins. And other times we just simply long to be done with sin forever. We long to see God without bound or restriction. We want to know the things that seem to be hidden from us as of yet. So while we are in this life, we as believers have to recognize and rest in the fact that God is working in us day by day and he isn't finished working. In another one of Paul's epistles, he gives us an illustration of this reality in the Christian life. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Paul says that we all, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. City on a hill, the Spirit of God is at work in each of us to transform us into his likeness. Do you realize what a work that is that God is doing in you? Are you picking up on the gravity of that statement? The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, we can only begin to grasp what a lofty destination that is. And here's the exciting part about being in the body of Christ. We get to encourage each other along the way. We get to participate in the building up of each other toward that. Listen to it again from verse, starting from verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, 
to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, Tim Keller talks about this concept in a book that he and his wife wrote called The Meaning of Marriage. Alex and I read it in premarital counseling, and I'm sure many of you have read it. If you haven't, I highly recommend it. There's a chapter or two in there talking about how God can use those closest to us, especially our spouses, to further that work that he's doing in us. I love coming back to this quote. He says this, Within this Christian vision for marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but look at you now. And the Grey Havens have a song called See You Again that speaks of this reality as well. So we wait for now till the day has arrived. When we meet once more, then I'll say something like, I always knew you could be like this. I saw flashes and glimpses before. But they fade and they seem like a distant dream when you walk into the door. Keller and the Grey Havens are referring to the promise that in eternity we will be like Christ. We will have reached maturity, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But until that day, we only get flashes and glimpses. Now, although Keller spoke of those flashes and glimpses in the context of marriage, it doesn't have to be limited to that. Church, we can live in a way that encourages each other toward growth in Christ-likeness. If we understand that Jesus is leading us down a path in a direction that conforms each of us to his own image, we should be on the lookout for instances when others display a degree of Christ-likeness and personally encourage them to continue in that. This is building up on the body. And yes, there will be a day when we see our friends in Christ, our fellow congregants, in full glory, in full and complete and mature Christ-likeness. We will look at them ear-to-ear grin and say, I always knew you could be like this. Before it was only flashes and glimpses, moments here and there mostly. But look at you now. City on a hill following him together has this destination, this conformity to Christ, mature and full in stature. And God has made it such that this journey is not to be done alone, but as part of the body of Christ. I want to close with a few thoughts on how we might, as a church, seek to apply these truths. I have just a couple. The first one is just small, simple communication. When we're in a time right now when our unity as a body is tested as never before, and our sense of togetherness is tested, we have among us many who aren't able to attend weekly for health reasons or the consideration of the health of a loved one, or simply because they're just unsure of the wise course of action. It's crucial that we in this time think of our whole body and be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Now, I'm not suggesting we whip ourselves into a frenzy trying to stay hyper-connected. I'm suggesting simple communication, little reminders that we're thinking of each other, asking for ways we can pray with and for one another. Now, in many ways, City on a Hill already does this. So I'm really just encouraging you to continue in that. But let's also stir one another up toward love and good works. There's something that happens in our lives as we pursue something or grow in something or learn something. We tend to lose sight of the incremental growth in ourselves. Over months and years, that little girl that first sits down to a piano, she grows into a seasoned concert pianist. But she may not see her progress in the day-to-day. 
she may practice many hours and not notice how much more gracefully her hands begin to flow across the keys, how much sharper her key strikes are becoming. Our walk in Christ can be a lot like this. Honestly, sometimes it's like watching grass grow in ourselves. Life and faith can feel so stagnant. We don't feel as though we're really growing in Christ-likeness. We don't feel his qualities being produced in us. And here's where others in the church can come in. One of my mentors since college has been this for me, probably the best encourager I've ever met. There have been many times when he's encouraged me by telling me about something that he's seen in me, some way that I'm growing, some level of maturity that he's noticing in me that I wasn't even aware of. I wasn't in tune with it at all. Didn't realize. And what he would tell me about that or encourage me with that, man, that would bolster my faith. Still does to this day. We still have those conversations from time to time. So what if you notice a friend in Christ who is growing in humility or gentleness or patience or any expression of Christ's likeness, those fruits of the Spirit? You may see it in them. We have to assume they aren't seeing it in themselves. Encourage them. Now, it doesn't have to be a long conversation. It could even be a Facebook message or a text. If online communication just isn't your thing, send a card. Cards and notes, they're underrated, and there's something about reading that physical card with the handwriting on there that makes you really consider what's been said. Friend, I'm sure your patience is being tested right now in your current situation, but I can see how you are waiting and submitting your plans to the Lord. I want to encourage you to find joy in this trial. The Lord has promised to produce in you patience, and maybe he's doing just that in this situation in your life. Or sister, I'm so encouraged to see how joyful you are in the midst of this. For so long, I've struggled to just put a smile on no matter what. And I can see that your joy runs deeper. You might not know this, but your joy right now is showing me what it looks like to trust the Lord in our trials. Or I see how sacrificially you are loving others with your time. That is the way of Jesus. Keep on keeping on. In this way, we can fulfill the teaching of Hebrews 10:24, considering how to stir one another up toward love and good works. Or other versions say, spur one another on toward love and good works and encourage one another. Again, in a lot of ways, our body is already doing this. So city on a hill, let's continue to invest our lives with others by living the gospel of Christ and following him together. Because of the immeasurable riches of what Christ has done for us on the cross, and by the immeasurable power with which he is at work in us. Let's walk in a manner fitting for our calling. Let's seek unity with each other. Let's be reminded of how we are being made into the image of the Lord Jesus from one degree of glory to another. Please join me in prayer. Father God, from eternity past, you've had a plan to redeem a people for yourself from all across the world. You sent your son to seek and save the lost, and he accomplished perfectly what he came to do. Now the Spirit testifies to this truth and works in the lives of all believers toward the end of being like Christ. Lord, help us to abide in the words of Jesus, to behold him daily, and to be conformed to him. Help us to walk in a manner fitting or worthy of our calling. May we be eager to maintain unity in the Spirit, Lord, even as you gifted us differently and uniquely for your service. May we be a people who see Christ's likeness in each other and say, that is what you are becoming and it's beautiful. May we encourage one another and spur one another on toward love and good works. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're starting our new series, Genesis 12 through 36. We also have multiple podcasts to check out, including Genesis, Crossroads, Ruth, Faithworks, and Glory. For upcoming news and events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org.